Good morning. Thank you, Michael and Praise Band. I sprang that on them at the last minute, by the way. I ran across that song from Steve's Kirk Chapman. There are not a lot of songs that go with uh, Luke chapter 2 when Jesus was just a child. Luke chapter 2, verse number 39, text that Brother Bobby read with you just a few moments ago. Initially, when we look at the story that's recorded in the last section of the second chapter of Luke, there seems to be of little consequence a part of the story of the life of Jesus, which if we consider it all, we consider it merely as an interesting antidote. Since it is the only incident in the biblical record of the growing up years of Jesus, I have to think that it must be important. Out of all the things that Luke must have heard from Mary, he has chosen only this one incident, perhaps because it reveals so much about the boy Jesus. Look with me, first of all, as we look at the development of Jesus, beginning in verse number 39. So when they had performed all things according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own city, Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. His parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, he went up to Jerusalem according to the custom of the feast. Between verses 38 and 39 of the second chapter of Luke, there are crucial events that transpire in the life of Jesus that only Matthew and his gospel account tells us about in Matthew chapter 1. We are told that the family returns to Bethlehem, and during the next year or so, a group of magi who had followed a guiding star arrived to worship the infant Jesus. Not long afterwards, King Herod, in paranoid jealousy, had all the boys of that region, two years old and younger, slaughtered. God, however, had sent an angel to warn Joseph, and the young family had fled to Egypt. Upon Herod's death, an angel again appears to Joseph to tell him, that it was safe to return home. Joseph and Mary travel back to Judea, to Galilee, and settle in Mary's hometown of Nazareth. Luke picks up the story after the family has settled in Nazareth. In fact, so little is known about the childhood of Jesus that it is sometimes referred to as the hidden years. There are some books called the Infancy Gospels, which were written several hundred years later, that tell rather fantastic tales about the boyhood of Jesus. Stories that when Jesus was five years old, he used his divine powers to make birds out of clay and made them into ability to fly by clapping his hands. There's another that he commanded a tree to bear fruit to refresh his mother. But they are all just fanciful stories. 
I'm sorry to inform you that Jesus did not travel to India. He did not study yoga with the Far Eastern masters. He did not receive visits from extraterrestrial beings. The Bible gives us no such record. In fact, one of the things that this text does is it helps us to understand that Jesus grew up in an absolutely normal family. After his miraculous birth, there is nothing supernatural recorded about him until he begins his ministry at the age of 30. Mary was an ordinary mother. Joseph was an ordinary father to Jesus. Luke helps us to understand that Jesus had a normal childhood. Luke's statement in verse 40 helps us to see that Jesus was gaining knowledge by observation and growing as any other normal child. Jesus had voluntarily laid aside his godhood when he took human form. The Apostle Paul described it in this way when he wrote his letter to the church at Philippi. He says, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of a man. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. It is impossible to say when, within this self-imposed limitation of humanity, that Jesus became aware of who he was and what he was sent to do. But probable, it was during this time that Luke records here that we see him at his peak. Luke summarizes in verse 52 the 18 years from the age of 12 until he begins his public ministry at the age of 30. Verse 52 says, And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. So the whole matter is summarized when it says that he increased. The word can also be translated advanced. This is an entirely different word from that found in verse 40 where it says that Jesus grew. This passage implies more than just the passage of time and the natural physical development. It implies development toward maturity. Verse 52, we see first that he advanced intellectually. It says that he increased increased in wisdom. But wisdom here is more than just knowledge. It is an understanding of the facts. Second, he advanced physically. He increased in stature, which suggests both maturity and physical growth. He grew just like any other little boy. Third, he advanced spiritually in favor with God. He was a joy to his heavenly Father, full of grace and truth. And fourth, he advanced socially in favor with men. He increased by in favor with men until 
That is, he announced that he was the long-awaited Messiah. And then opinions divided. Jesus passed through a natural but perfect spiritual and physical development. At every stage, he was perfect for that stage. Secondly, notice the disappearance of Jesus in verse 41. His parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem according to the custom of the feast. And when they had finished the days, as they returned, the boy Jesus lingered behind in Jerusalem. And Joseph and his mother did not know. But supposing him to have been in the company, they went a day's journey and sought him among their relatives and acquaintances. Luke shows how faithful Jesus' parents are by stating that they never missed an opportunity to journey up to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. The Passover is one of three great feasts that every adult Jewish male was required to attend. Passover, Pentecost, and the Feast of the Tabernacles. But practicality made it impossible for most to do that. So practicality made it possible for most to only attend one feast each year in Jerusalem. And it was the custom of the parents of Jesus to attend Passover, the celebration of Israel's deliverance from Egypt. When the feast of the Passover was over, his parents, as well as most of those who had come to the city for that feast, began their journey home. Verse 43 says, when they had finished the days as they returned, the boy Jesus lingered behind in Jerusalem, and Joseph and his mother did not know it. When the family of Jesus joined the thousands of other pilgrims, they were leaving the city in Jerusalem. But Jesus was not discovered missing immediately. This is probable for several reasons, one of which was that Jesus had always been a trustworthy and reliable and obedient child. Have you ever thought about what it would be like to be the parent of a perfect child? Most of you say, no, but I'd like to try. They did. People in that day often traveled to the feast in caravans for protection. The women and the children would lead the way, setting the pace, and the men and the young boys followed behind. I suspect that each of the parents may have assumed that Jesus was with the other parent. It was not until they had gone a day's journey from Jerusalem and evening came that they discovered that Jesus was missing. Were there recriminations? This is usually when parents start blaming each other. Joseph, I thought he was with you. The older boys are supposed to walk with their father. Joseph saying, me? I thought he was with you. You're his mother. This happened to us when our daughter was four. Since I arrive at church early, I try to leave home between 7.30 and 7.45 on Sunday morning. My wife does not feel led to come with me. I, I can't explain that to you. So we always take two vehicles to church. On one particular Sunday when I arrived home from the morning service, she met me at the door and said, where's Nikki? 
I said, I thought she was with you. She said, no, she was supposed to be with you. Well, as it turned out, obviously, we had left her behind at the church. That's when you get scared. (laughs) Is she there alone? Is she scared because she can't find us? Well, this particular story has a happy ending because we had a loyal church member who stayed until her forgetful parents came to reclaim her. That's also why I believe God gives you all the children he thinks he can trust you with, and obviously we have one. In like fashion, the situation found in verses 43 through 45 is every parent's nightmare. As parents, we all know the trauma of not being able to find our child in a shopping mall or at a ballpark, even if it's only momentary. You know the feeling that almost overpowers you, the palpitating heart, the frantic searching, the calling them by their name and ever more shrill tones and feeling fear and dread and embarrassment. The questions that surge through our minds are, are they safe? Uh, What could have happened to them? There's guilt and shame. We should have kept a better eye on them. We should have been more careful. Well, then you multiply those feelings by a hundred or a thousand or It couldn't match what Joseph and Mary must have felt. After all, they had been entrusted by God with his son, and they lost him. We see the discovery of Jesus in verse 46. And now, so it was that after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions, and all who heard him were astonished at his understanding and his answers. The text tells us that it was three days before his parents found him. And it's not clear whether they were looking for Jesus for three days in Jerusalem or that it was a total of three days, one day journeying out of Jerusalem, one day journeying back, and one day, the third day, finding Jesus. But after all the searching and anxiety, Jesus' parents eventually find him sitting in the temple. The text says that the teachers were astonished at his understanding and his answers. The Greek tense suggests that the teachers of the law were amazed over and over again at Jesus' insight. The sense of the verse also suggests that the teachers knew and understood that they were not just in the presence of an unusually bright student. They recognize the wisdom of God upon this boy. It is not necessary to see Jesus as a genius here, although he may have been. After all, Jesus would have been perfect humanity, the full potential of a human without sin. But Jesus was not some precocious quiz kid straightening out his elders. Rather, we see a sinless 12-year-old, well-studied in the Scripture and illuminated by his Father in heaven. Now, notice the reaction of his parents. They were also amazed. So when they saw him, verse 48, they were amazed. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you done this to us? Look, your father and I have sought you 
anxiously. But that amazement that they felt was overcome by just plain irritation. Just place yourself in the place of Jesus' parents for a moment. And try to be honest. Imagine your growing sense of alarm as the time passes and the child has not been found. Consider how your fears must have intensified as you recall how absolutely trustworthy Jesus has always been. And then you find him in the temple, seemingly unmoved by any concern for the anxiety that his actions have caused. Admit it now, you would have been angry. You'd been angry with him, just as they were. You would react as any parent would to a missing child who, when finally found, and seems to be insensitive to their feelings. There was joy and relief, but there was also frustration and confusion. A frustrated mother now addresses her adolescent son and says, How could you have behaved this way, leaving your parents with such a major anxiety attack? The term sought you anxiously refers to deep mental anguish and pain. The reproach that she words comes from hurt feelings. So was Jesus guilty of sin? There are two points, and one of them is, did Jesus sin in his actions? Do Mary's words, son, why have you done this to us, indicate wrongdoing on the part of Jesus? That has been a question that has been much discussed down through the centuries. Some hold, yes, Jesus was being disobedient and therefore sinful. But I cannot accept that as the answer because the Bible says Jesus was without sin. He never sinned. The writer of Hebrews wrote, and he was tempted in every way just as we are yet without sin. The apostle Peter wrote, he committed committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. And Apostle John wrote, and in him is no sin. To say that Jesus sinned contradicts then the word of God and renders Jesus incapable of being our sin barrier. Second, Mary in her statement refers to Jesus, to Joseph as Jesus' father. Your father... And I have sought you anxiously. In his answer, Jesus makes clear who his father is. We look at the declaration of Jesus. Mary's loving rebuke brought a respectful but astonished reply from Jesus. Verse 49. Why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business. It is interesting to consider these are the first recorded words of Jesus in the Bible. And they speak of his unique relationship with God the Father. 
Jesus is essentially saying, Mother, based on your own experience of the confirmation given you, you have to know who I am and why I have come to the earth. Jesus reminds his parents that he was first and foremost the Son of God in obedience to him and called to carry out his father's business. He introduces the concept that he had a heavenly father who had an agenda for him that would not always coincide with that of his earthly parents. Jesus does not seek to run ahead of God or drag his feet behind his timing. Rather, he seeks only to do what God has called him to do when God tells him to do it. The best timing is always God's timing. Jesus, for the first time, introduces the concept of God as a father who is present, someone that you can call Abba. Abba means more than just father. It's an intimate term, probably more accurate to say daddy. Today we have a hard time understanding how radical a concept this was at the time. Of the 39 books that make up the Old Testament, God is referred to as father 14 times. Just 14 times. And then never in a personal sense. But when Jesus came on the scene, he referred to God as his father and he never used any other term to describe him. When he began his public ministry, his awareness of God as his father became the trademark of his ministry. You should also notice in his response the word must. I must be about my father's business. Must was a term often used by the Lord. He said, I must preach. He said, the son of man must suffer. He said, the son of man must be lifted up. Even at 12, he was moved by a compulsion to do his father's will. Verse 50 says, but they did not understand the statement which was spoken to them. Joseph and Mary did not grasp what Jesus had said. The incident ends with his parents perplexed at the events that had just transpired in their life. The text tells us that Jesus went back with them to Nazareth in verse 51, and then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject to them, but his mother kept all these things in her heart. As a respectful and dutiful son, Jesus returned to Nazareth with his parents, and he was subject to them or obedient to them. This is the last time that Joseph is mentioned. Most assume by the time that Jesus began his ministry, Joseph was dead. Both Joseph and Mary failed to understand and completely appreciate the full significance of what Jesus had said. Mary might not understand, but she remembered. Mary adds this to the list of things 
that she is pondering about her son. It was only after his death and resurrection that Mary, Mary truly understood the significance of many of the things that Jesus had said. So what does all this mean to us? First, as parents, we need to recognize that God may not lead our child in a way that we understand. Sometimes the way that God leads our child may be painful and costly to us. But nevertheless, it is the will for their lives. And as such, we should never stand in the way of our children following God. Secondly, like Joseph and Mary, whenever our lives are touched by inconvenience or delay, much less pain or distress, we are tempted to become angry. We want God to explain his reasons and his purposes to us, just as Mary and Joseph expected Jesus to justify his actions. And third and finally this morning, if spiritual growth was important to Jesus, shouldn't our spiritual growth be important to us? There are some wonderful things that God has provided for our spiritual growth if we do not allow other things to crowd them out. Some of those things are the scripture, involvement in the body of Christ, prayer, and obedience to what we know is the will of God. Nothing should ever be allowed to keep us from those vital means of spiritual growth. Let's pray. Father, we recognize that it is difficult for us to fathom that your son came to this world and took on human form, that he limited his divine ability in order to live as a perfect human, in order that he might be able to bear our sin on the cross of Calvary. There is no way that we can ever be thankful enough for that. Father, there may be one here this morning who has never come under the forgiveness of sin because they've never asked. They've never stopped to realize that they're a sinner and turned to you in repentance and said, Lord, I know I'm a sinner. I know I can't save myself, but I know that Jesus did everything necessary for my salvation on the cross of Calvary. Lord, if there's one here today, would you help them in that? Father, help us as believers to look for those applications in our lives as you guide us, especially in conjunction with our lives as parents and grandparents to help to guide those young people within our scope of responsibility. Help us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me? We're going to have a hymn of invitation. If you're here this morning.